This is God's word from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and every bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Thank you, Haven. Morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is John Fox. I'm the administrative pastor here. I get to preach for you today out of Isaiah 9. And um, before we get going, <clears throat> and I'll pray here in a moment, I just want to say thank you so much to uh, Nick, Joe, and Zach, and, um, and Myung for leading the men's retreat and putting all that together. Can we just give them a round of applause? I appreciate that. It, uh, it's one of those signs for me of a real healthy church, like something's happening, God's doing something, when 35 men get together, take time out of their schedule, and um, away, getting, stepping away from their families to come together and pray, read their Bibles, pray for each other, um, share, enjoy doing dumb things together that nobody got hurt at, thankfully, you know? Um, those, those are all just kind of indicators for me that uh, God's doing something, so I wanted to share that with you. For me, I've been to many men's retreats, and this one was special. It was different in that um, I've never been to one in which every participant was there eager and attentive to jump in and, and, and pray, eager and attentive to listen to the Word, eager and attentive to, to get to know each other. It was really something, so... I uh, just wanted to share that with you guys and encourage the men's discipleship team. It was a great event uh, and encouraging for me. Really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, beyond that, kind of getting into the sermon, if you haven't noticed yet, we are ramping up for an election year, aren't we? Have you guys seen the propaganda flying? Um, it's it's going to be a fun one again, right? Um, Already here, all kinds of all kinds of uh, things are are running, and I, I find for myself, I'm probably more in tune politically than I've ever been in my life. Uh, you know, for better or for worse. One of the things my kids always say when I get home and I turn on YouTube uh, and I'm looking through feeds of you know congressional hearings or whatnot, um, they say, "Oh no, the news! Dad's watching the news," and I realize like I'm. 
I'm becoming an old man. I am. <laughs> I come home, I sit on the couch, and I watch the news. So I don't know what's happening, but it's just the gravity of life, I suppose. Uh, and it's been more interesting to me than ever in, in different ways. And, and one of the things that continually reemerges for me as I, I watch different parties and different systems and all different things going on in Congress, um, you know, local government and uh, federal government, is that still, still, everyone is looking for somebody to put their faith in every time. And I find it in myself, too. You know, I, I watch these things. I'm like, oh, maybe that guy. Maybe he's going to do something. Maybe he's going to fix the nation. Maybe he's going to help people. And it's almost subconscious, this kind of draw that we have towards looking for somebody to fix these problems, right? To make our our government and our world a better place. And the, uh, the sad truth here is that it fails so often, right? It fails so often. Our leaders fail so often. And today, that's really important because as we look, continue to look in Isaiah here, we see that this kind of anticipation, this kind of hope, this kind of desire, it's the same thing going on in Isaiah's day. And uh, just to recap the, the series for you here, we are in a, uh, a series going through selections of Isaiah that we think are some of the most important. It's hard to do the whole book. It's a, it's a lot, so we're just taking selections here. Um, but so far, we've seen in chapter one that we have a great need for a Messiah. This is how the book begins, this prophetic book. Uh, we have a need for the Messiah, and at the very beginning of it, a lawsuit is put in place by God against his people, and even more against all of humanity, where he says, you're unfaithful to me. So let's just, let's bring this into court. Let's have session. Uh, and that's very much of chapter one. In chapter six, we see that Isaiah, who is a prophet uh, to the, the southern kingdom of Judah, is confronted in a vision with God's holiness. And he, as the uh, kind of proto-man in the sense, represents mankind in God's throne room, in his court. And he sees God's holiness and he, he, uh, he weeps, he wails, he says, I'm undone. Not only me, but the whole nation are guilty of sin. And this incredible view of God's holiness is elevated and, uh, and then takes form for the rest of the book where Isaiah has a job description. Go and preach to these people. Preach to them about who I am and this message of salvation. But when you do, it will fall on deaf ears because this people has turned away from me. And... In chapter 7, last week, we heard of a prophecy of a boy that would come and make all things right. Uh, this boy who would be born of a virgin, his name being Emmanuel, which means God with us. And today, the news of that boy reemerges in chapter 9, where now we get some more definition. God provides some more insight of who this boy is and what it means for his people and the whole world. And so it's important for us because we have in our day a, um, a real tie-in with Isaiah in the tumultuous times that they had. Different nations, wars going on. And the, is, the uh, Israelites split into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Now we have a civil war. And in this situation, God comes and says, 
What you need to do is have your faith in me to lead you. And I think it's obvious by now through human history, if, if you haven't picked up yet, that even though we keep trying to c- create better systems of government, which uh, by, by and large, I'm really grateful for America. I think we have the best political system out of any system in the world uh, or in history, minus Jesus, you know. Um, it'll be perfect when Jesus comes. But until then, we have a wonderful system, a wonderful democratic re- republic, even if it has its faults and failures. But, but we see, even in this, there's, there's failure happening all the time. And uh, it just makes me think of Winston Churchill, the British prime minister, incredible man, who, uh, who said this about uh, politics and democracy in particular. He said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's true. It's totally true. Um, that the total sum game of government, at least in the Lord's eyes, is to say, it is broken. It will fail. Why? Because we are broken. Because we fail. And it will always be so until God sets up something else. And so today, uh, let's go ahead and, and pray before we get into this text and just ask the Lord to give us these ears to hear. Give us these eyes to see that Isaiah did not have the benefit of. Father, as we look into your word, we, uh, we pray that you would refresh us, you would strengthen us. God, you would establish us being, being your people in foreign territory, your people in an enemy environment. God, we ask that you would lift our eyes to see Christ and him as the perfect ruler. We ask in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so as we begin here, in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, we read this. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. And then we read that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. I don't know about you, but especially in my, uh, in my prep here studying this passage, uh, I, I, I know a fair amount of theology. I have a couple degrees or whatnot. I can still read the Old Testament and, uh, you know, chapter 7, chapter 8, and think, oh, man, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to understand, hard to connect with. And uh, so I think there's two kind of main difficulties that emerge for us as we do start to read this passage and try to really understand what God is saying. Um, number one is that we're just not in tune. We're not in tune with uh, the context, the political ramifications of the day, so much going on. And one of the, the key phrases that emerges here is gloom and darkness that Isaiah is talking about. He just talked about the, the promised boy. But just after that, then he talks about this gloom and darkness, what's going on. I find sometimes it's helpful to flip to the back of your Bible and look at your maps. So it's a map day. We got some maps for you. Um, 
Like I said, one of the main difficulties is that we just don't understand the context, so I just want to clear that up real quick and then uh, hopefully address the second issue. Uh, So just to try to help you understand in this ancient Near Eastern context, what's happening in this civil war that's emerged is there's essentially other nations that are starting to gain power. And as they gain power, now they're siding with either the northern or the southern kingdoms of Israel. And essentially, the, the northern kingdom is the big dog. It has been. And Syria, which is the... Uh, uh, let's go to the next slide. Syria is uh, the star to the north the most, and then Israel. Those two powers have aligned in Isaiah's day. So everyone starts freaking out, right? Everyone in Judah, the small blue star there, says, we're going to get destroyed. We're going to get demolished. That's very much the context of Isaiah 7, where God comes and says, trust me. And yet Ahaz says, no, I don't think I'm going to trust you. I want some other political alliances. And Isaiah, as he's ministering under many different kings here, uh, at this point, the king of a- uh, named Ahaz he will, he will say, you need to trust the Lord. And Ahaz says no. And the pressure is immense. The political pressure is immense. The safety and security of the nation of Judah is at stake. So we could probably understand a little bit more why this is such a big deal for Judah, why this is such a big deal for Ahaz. And yet, the prophecy from Isaiah says, do not be concerned about these other nations. Don't be concerned about Israel. Don't be concerned about Syria. Why? Because as big and as bad as they are, they're about to burn out. And they are about to be swallowed up by another nation. And that's the next slide. The next slide here shows us still the position of Judah. Down at the bottom, the southern kingdom. And now you see the kingdom of Assyria and Babylon that is just on the verge of breaking through. So however concerned Ahaz was, he literally has no clue of about what's going to happen here. What we see is a, a kingdom more vast than anything in history is about to assemble to come and crush Judah. And in light of this still, God's statement through Isaiah is, trust me, turn to me, and I will protect you. And so in this context, we see there's immense fear happening, immense fear going on. And that's probably one barrier to this this text. It's just hard for us to understand what's happening. But if you understand that, I think there's something else that's really um, a blocker for us, very prohibitive of us understanding this passage And that's probably that we just haven't suffered enough. We haven't suffered enough. What do I mean by that? If if you go to my granddad's house in uh, in Texas, I guarantee you, you're going to find one, if not two things in the freezer. Batteries and coffee. Why? Uh, It's because my granddad lived through the Great Depression. He was born the year before the Great Depression. And... Um, if you ever spend time with him or read his volumes of books, five, I think, are five and growing, um, then he will tell you so much about the Great Depression. He will tell you so much about what it was like to live in such darkness and such scarcity. 
And people who have been through something like that, who have suffered so much that way, they, they have such a high appreciation for the benefits that we have these days. They don't take it for granted. And, and for these people in Isaiah's day, this is very much the case. If, if you read this passage and you say, well, yeah, okay, they may be afraid. Yeah, they may be afraid, but they also have so much to look forward to. They have so much to be grateful for. And this is the context that Isaiah is ministering in. So we see that Jesus is the global ruler that we all need. He's this hope. He's this light in the darkness. And for people who have suffered much, like I have said, the more that you suffer, this is a strange maxim, strange continuum here. The more that you suffer, the more you appreciate it when things go right, don't you? And that very much is the case that Isaiah is saying. There's a light in the darkness that is coming. And if you're in the darkness, you start to understand and appreciate we need the light. We need it badly. And this is, no coincidence, exactly what is said of Jesus as he steps onto the scene in Galilee. In Matthew 4, we read this, that he left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of shadow and death, a light has dawned. And then we read that from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see, Isaiah in his day, ministering to God's people, said there will be a boy that will be born. There's a light coming, a light coming to dispel this darkness. And even though Isaiah didn't see it, he saw it through faith, even though the people of Isaiah's day didn't see it, and they're thrown into exile and subjugation, there's a promise that remains. So when Jesus comes in the New Testament, we see so clearly that the gospel writers, Matthew especially, look at him and say, he's the promised light. We live in darkness. Yet God has promised that the light would come, and here he is, coming in the same geographic location that Isaiah promised, Galilee of the Gentiles. And this marks very much the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the global ruler that we all need. He is. Why? First, because he's a light in the darkness. He's a light in the darkness. But this light is not just mere economic prosperity. You see, when we go back and we think about politicians and all the hopes that we may have, so much of them rest on economic prosperity, safety, security. Jesus as the light provides far more than that. He actually demolishes strongholds. His light comes and conquers the darkness of the world. There's a spiritual darkness that Jesus dispels when he comes with his ministry. And so the first thing that we see this morning is that Jesus is the global ruler, but it's because he's the light. He is the light in the darkness. Second thing that this text shows us this morning uh, is beyond that. He's also the source of joy. There's a real promise here as we continue to read that you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. 
the people have rejoiced before you, and they rejoice at harvest time. And then later on, just as you did on the day of Midian. Do you guys know what the day of Midian is? Any idea? One word sums it up. Gideon. Conquered. You had one word. Gideon. Uh, There's a fascinating story in Judges 6 and 7, and that is the account of how one of the judges named Gideon got raised up to, uh, to protect and secure God's people. And how did he do it? It's remarkable. I I wish I had more time to go into the story and and other things that it ties to. But Gideon, the smallest, the weakest man out of the weakest tribe, out of the weakest clan, okay? This guy is like the last person you would ever, ever put in charge. (laughs) Totally weak. He's a coward, actually. So many times he has to keep coming back to God to, uh, to pray, say, God, do you really want me to do that? Okay, God, you said you, I'm, you're going to take care of me. Okay, God, are you really going to? Yes, okay. Every time. But God puts him in charge. He raises him up, and then he takes 300 men. He gets more than 300 men, but he says, no, nope, more than 300 is too much. All of you have to go away. So they have 300 men, and then they go, and they conquer these other Midianites and other nations that had come to accost them and subjugate them for years and years. And with 300 men and no swords, they beat 135 men from other nations. An incredible turn of events in human history. And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. That just as you did on the day of Midian. The day of Midian, where Gideon defeated the Midianites, is one of those key points in the Old Testament where you look back to see God's clear salvation of his people. And what's so interesting about that is that joy is inexorably linked to this event. Now, when we talk about joy, it's often because pumpkin spice is back at Starbucks, right? There's, there's, there's something happening in the air, and it happens every year in the fall uh, with the name of pumpkin spice. That's not joy, okay? That's not joy, The kind of joy that Isaiah is talking about, that Gideon experienced, that all those people experienced, is freedom from oppression. Another way that you could say it is victory. Joy and victory are tied together. They certainly are in the Bible. They certainly are here. And so when you have this incredible rescue of God's people, 300 men with no swords that defeat 135,000 men, joy explodes Why? Because victory is at hand. There is so much to look forward to. There's so much to be grateful for. Um, Blake, you know, uh, our music and production director, he he really loves fantasy fiction and sci-fi. Just kidding. We we talk about it all the time. But um, he he will hate this reference. But you know that scene at the end of The Return of the Jedi? When all the Ewoks are dancing on the moon? You know? Everyone's so happy. And the flutes and the, the drums are going and everyone's dancing. That is joy. That is victory. Yes. Star Wars. Yes. It's, it's, it's just right there next to the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> the return of the Jedi and the Ewoks rejoicing. This is, this is something to have in mind. You know, when your sports team wins, celebration. 
There's a cannon. Someone launches a cannon every time the Seahawks win. Did you know that? Okay. So you hear it sometimes on Sunday. Why? Because of joy. Because of rejoicing. Because of victory. This is the same kind of thing that the New Testament writers are talking about with the ministry of Jesus. You see, he's qualified to be this global ruler, not just because he's the light in the darkness, but because he's the source of joy. In Colossians 2, we read this, that he, Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Jesus on the cross isn't merely paying for sins, even though that is tremendous, and it's cause for celebration and joy in victory. Jesus on the cross ironically defeats death and demons by his own substitutionary death on your behalf and raised for your justification. Jesus is the source of joy because he is the conquering king. And we don't talk about this so much anymore these days, but you have an enemy. You have enemies. You can't see them. But they are hell-bent on destroying your life. Jesus stands in the gap, even today. So when we look at Jesus and his qualifications, if you would call, call it that, to be this supreme ruler, this global ruler, it's also because he is the one He is the one who brings with him joy. He is the source of joy. And just as an aside here, I wanted to take just a minute or two to talk about this. It is totally possible for us, totally possible for a society to live off the benefits of the light, to live off the benefits of the victory of Jesus. Be them economic prosperity, be them Civility, some measure of peace, and at the same way, turn away from him. And I think that's very much where we are as a nation. There are all kinds of benefits that we take for granted of this Christian world, this Christian environment, this, this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And our job as Christians isn't necessarily to always get upset and say, this is not the way it should be because we should have We should have all the rights and privileges. That's not how Jesus lived. Our job is to lay down our rights and privileges and point to him and say that he is the king that we all need. More than that, we see that Jesus also is the promised boy in this next section. You see, Jesus, as the light in the darkness and the source of victory, Um, those are things that are somewhat new in the revelation of Scripture, somewhat of a new way to talk about him. But the old way to talk about him in his ministry is in this next section, which so clearly talks about him as the promised boy. In Isaiah 9-6, we read, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. When we see Jesus here, it's because 
Jesus embodies these things. And this is one of the clearest places in the Old Testament that you can get to see Jesus prophesied here. Why? Well, there's a child to be born to us. This should definitely give you overtones of Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility talking to the serpent. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the time at which God said, you messed everything up, but I will send a boy. And at the same time, this boy will be mortally wounded. He will be struck when he crushes your head. There's a promise here, an overtone of this Genesis 3.15 passage that's coming through. And more than that, we get more definition about this boy. What is he like? What do we call him? Four phrases. Wonderful counselor. The fourfold titles of the Messiah here. First, this wonderful counselor. He is somebody who provides not just wonderful counsel. Another way that you could talk about it, uh, probably more accurately, is to say that this is supernatural counsel. Either this means that the, the counsel that this person provides is supernatural, or the counselor is supernatural. Either way you cut it. The kind of counsel that is in view here is the kind of counsel, counsel that is provided by, let's say, Solomon, the wisest man. People come to him with questions all the time. How do you govern? How do you rule? What do you do? Every time, providing the best possible, almost divine answer. So we see that this promised boy has that wisdom. More than that, that's just one thing. You could say this is just an earthly, a human person. But then we have mighty God. There is absolutely no way around this in Hebrew. Uh, El, the word for God, is attached to mighty here. Who is this boy who's going to be wise beyond all earthly standards and at the same time God, the conquering, victorious, warrior, God? At the same time, his name is Eternal Father. Now, Sometimes in the Old Testament, like here, this isn't necessarily a reference to the Trinity, but this is a reference to the paternal aspect of Jesus' care for us. He's somebody who cares for the nation. He's someone who has a, a fatherly tone, whether that's just provision for the, for the uh, disenfranchised or that's discipline for the one who needs it. He's the eternal father from before all time. He's also the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. All earthly princes, all earthly kingdoms and rules and rulers, they have ended. And I hate to break it to you, America is going to end. It's going to end one day. Any alliances in Europe, any ancient, any uh, Eastern Alliances, Saudi Arabia, China, they're all ending. Every single one of them. And everyone that has offered peace and provided some measure of it has ended. But this boy offers a kingdom, a government that has no end of peace. The peace goes on and on forever. 
He is the Prince of Peace, in fact. And it's very instructive to us that after Jesus' earthly ministry, or the tail end of it, you might say, what does he do as soon as he's resurrected? He goes to his disciples, startles them, because he's alive. And what are his first words? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. The one who has all rule, power, and authority comes and says, peace. If that doesn't bring you back to joy, nothing else will. He is the global ruler we all need because he is the boy that God promised to fulfill all of these things, that he would come and he would put an end to the enmity with God and with each other. His peace rules over all things. And we as believers, we live in this peace. At least we have one foot in this peace. We have one foot in this kingdom and one in the present kingdom. And this is how Isaiah ends this section in verse 7 to talk about this kingdom. That this boy, this promised boy, is also the Davidic king. He says, the dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of armies. You see, the promise, uh, the upshot of this promised boy is that he brings with him this kingdom. And this kingdom The biblical language uh, says that he will sit on the throne of his father, David. Now, if you want to do some more study and go back to it, 2 Samuel 7 is where God gives this covenant. He gives this promise to David to say, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. And I'll make sure that one of your descendants sits on the throne that is everlasting. This government will never come to an end. The dominion, Isaiah says, will be vast. Uh, The old King James version of it says that of this government, there will be no end, or of the increase of this government, there will be no end. That in Jesus' rule over all things, it's not just that there's peace and everything's static. The kingdom, the government, continues to expound. Whatever good there is, there's more of it the next day. Whatever righteousness there is, there's more tomorrow. You haven't ever experienced anything like this. I haven't ever experienced anything like this. Whatever knowledge of God you have that gives you comfort and assurance, there's more the next day. Whatever degree, whatever degree of harmony that you experience in your relationships, there's more tomorrow. Whatever ease of suffering there is in Jesus' kingdom, it goes on and on and on. Who doesn't want this kind of kingdom? Only one kind of person. The person who says, I want my own kingdom. That's the only alternative. That's the only other way. And for you this morning, if you look at this, If you look at these so-called qualifications of Jesus, he's the light in the darkness. That he is, uh, he's beyond the light even. Not only is he the light, but he's the source of all joy. 
Beyond being the source of joy and victory, he's also the promised one that fulfills all these promises God gave. Every, every good thing that you can imagine. He also brings this kingdom, this Davidic kingdom that has no end. And he rules forever. One of the, one of the best ways that I, I was thinking about this this week is, you know, it's so easy to put your faith in, in other leaders, figures of state. They don't know me. They know nothing about me. They don't know that I even exist. They know that I'm just one person out of a multitude. That's not how Jesus rules. Jesus knows you to the bottom. Every single one of us. And desires for us to be in relationship with him. And so we finish this by reading of the zeal of the Lord of armies. The conquering king. And there's a a commentator that put it far better than I could. So I'm just going to read what he wrote. Talking about Jesus and his zeal in his kingdom. As a comfort for us as we close. Zeal. Is that jealousy which is a component of all true love and preeminently of the Lord's love. His love will brook no rival and is provoked to disloyalty. It is equally, however, the power of love moving the Lord to make his people's cause his own and the passionate commitment of his nature to fulfill his purposes for them. All this zealous determination is that of Yahweh, the Exodus God, whose nature it is to save his people and overthrow his foes. It is backed by divine omnipotence and pledged to achieve this, the advent and kingdom of the Messiah. Church, what good news that we have in Jesus as the global ruler and being a part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you. Thank you for your promises, so many of which have come to bear on us and not previous generations. But still for all of us to be invited, to be accepted, to be even placed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of the beloved Son, Lord, we thank you for Jesus and his powerful rule now sitting down, ruling from heaven over all things. Lord, we ask that as we hold him in view, that as we submit ourselves to your good and kind rule, Lord, that we aren't anxious, we aren't driven by so many stresses, that can consume our minds, consume our hearts. But Lord, that we would have the king in view and being citizens of his kingdom as our, as our daily recitation. That we are a part of this new world, this new kingdom. And one day, one day, we will see it. We will see it. Lord, we ask that you would give us strength and courage to live for you. Your son's name, amen.